Welcome to those of you who are in the room you're with your handsome face that are all masked. And uh, welcome to those who are watching online. We're so glad that you could join us this morning. Uh, my name is Mark Martin. I'm an elder here at LifePoint, and I'm also on the faculty at UMBC in the Department of Chemical, Biochemical, and Environmental Engineering. You've joined us in the fourth week of our five-week series called Grow Up, and we're talking about how to grow or mature to become the people that God wants us to be. Uh, but before we get started, I have to tell you about a surreal experience that I had uh, last weekend. And it all started with a box of plastic. So let me explain what I mean. Maybe your family's like mine. About 20 years ago, we got our first video camera. Our kids right now are 21, 20, and 18, and so that was when the kids were little. And uh, if you were like us, life was busy and crazy, and we videotaped a lot of things. And typically what we do is after the videotape was full, I'd write the date on it, and I'd throw it in a shoebox. And on occasion, we'd pull out the shoebox and look at some tapes, but the only way we could play those tapes, because there were these DVI uh, mini tapes, was to use the camera. So I, as best I can tell, in about 2009 or 2010, our camera broke. So the tapes were sitting in a shoebox, and there was no way to watch the tapes. And so for 10 years, it's been on my to-do list to digitize the tapes. And I'm pretty tech-savvy. I figured I can figure this out, but I never got around to doing it. And then a couple years ago, I learned that there's these companies that will do it for you. The problem is it's kind of expensive to do that, and I'm kind of cheap. <laughs> so for two years, this has been on my to-do list. Well, in December, so just two months ago, I bit the bullet and I mailed about 80 old videotapes to a company. That's the pile of plastic. And uh, so most of the video in there is, is 20, 15 to 20 years old, uh, but you can notice some VHS tapes in there. Uh, some date back, this is like an archaeological dig, right? Some date back almost 40 years to when I was in college. My dad had a VHS camcorder, and there was a few of those tapes in there. And uh, the oldest one I could find was from 1985. That's when I was still in college. So last weekend, I got the links to watch the downloaded, uh, to watch the digitized video. And uh, men and women, it, the only way I can explain it is to say it was a transcendent experience. It, really, really. I mean, I sat down, and in the blink of an eye, four hours passed without even thinking about it. I mean, there were so many things that I had long since forgotten that I'm, I'm watching on video here. I'm watching myself in college. I'm watching one of the very first sermons that I ever did, right? And, and my sense of time absolutely went away uh, as I was watching these things. And so that's relevant, amazingly relevant, some, some observations here for this morning in our series called Grow Up. I mean, my kids grew up physically, emotionally, mentally, and I watched that happen. I grew up right? Even the trees in my front yard grow up. Uh, but that brings us to the central idea in our series that it's normal for living things to grow if they're nourished. It's normal for living things to grow if they're nourished. I mean, kids grow taller, adults grow wider, <laughs> trees grow bigger, right? It's normal for things to grow. A couple observations. So number one, many things grow at different rates. Many things grow at different rates. Now, it's not uncommon if you haven't seen a kid, you know, six months later, it's like, oh my word, they look huge now compared to what they did six months ago. But a tree, maybe not so much, right? It might take several years before you realize the stick, sticks in the videos from 20 years ago are now two and a half foot diameter trees in my front yard. It's crazy how that happens, right? 
Also an observation I had was it's ironic that even when nourished, some things don't grow. Some things don't grow. And I give you one piece of evidence here. We've all met an adult who has the emotional maturity of a 16-year-old, haven't we? And maybe you're sitting next to them right now. I don't know. But, um, but if I'm honest with you, there are things in my life that were true 40 years ago that I wasn't excited about. They were still true in my life 20 years ago. And to some extent, maybe they're still true about me now. So there's areas where we don't grow. So the whole idea of this series is that we believe that it's possible to grow spiritually. It's possible to become spiritually mature. So what does that mean? For me, that means that we learn to do, we actually learn to do the things that Jesus said to do. What did he say to do? He said to love God and love people. He said to bless those who curse you. He said, don't get worried and don't be angry. And you can say to me, well, Mark, those are really hard things. I don't know if it's really possible to learn those things. And I think that it is. And, and I hope that you're motivated to grow. I hope you have a desire to grow. In week one of our series, Joe talked about this. He said that, and it's true, we're commanded to grow. There's so many verses about this. It pleases God when we grow. But I think there's another reason for me personally uh, that I want to grow. And I was reminded about this in the videos again. If you ask any little kid, what do you want to do? And they say, I want to grow up. <laughs> Why? Why do you want to grow up? Because I want to be big, right? And I think if you really process through a child's desire to grow, it focuses in on two ideas, two ideas, the idea of freedom and responsibility. Because when you're a child, you don't have much freedom. You have to do what your parents tell you, and you don't have very much responsibility. So I think kids see that. Kids see that. And I think God sees that in us. He wants us to grow because he wants to increase the degree to which we have freedom and responsibility. In his book, Hearing God, Dallas Willard talked about it. He said, God wants to develop an intelligent, freely cooperative relationship between him and us. A relationship in which we are fellow workers and co-laborers with him. God wants to participate, he wants us to participate in the governance of his kingdom. God wants to give us freedom and responsibility to co-reign with him. For me, that's motivating, it's exciting because freedom and responsibility are fulfilling, they're satisfying. That's one really important reason why I hope that you want to grow so on the second week of our series, Joe talked about uh, a large-scale three-year study run by the Will Creek Association called Reveal. And uh, the study uh, authors talked to thousands of people at different churches to better understand how growth works. And there's a number of very interesting insights there. One of the primary insights was that there's four stages or four categories of growth as they, as they discovered. First is exploring Christ, those who believe in God, but they're not sure about Jesus, they're not sure about Christ. And then hopefully people move to the second stage, which is growing in Christ, those people who believe in Jesus and are working on what it means to get to know him. Eventually people grow close to Christ, where they depend on him daily for guidance. And hopefully people will ultimately reach a Christ-centered perspective, where Jesus is the most important relationship in their life and guides everything they do. So that's all good, well and good. Uh, but Joe said something when he was talking about the real, real study that almost made me jump. It was something that I didn't realize back when I first heard about the study, uh, but I, it totally resonated with me. He said that of all the spiritual practices, there was one, just one, that was the most influential spiritual practice in helping people grow. In 2008, Christianity Today wrote an article about the Reveal study, and this is what they had to say. They said, 
hands down, this was the highest impact personal spiritual practice. So what was it? Joe talked about it a couple weeks ago. I don't know. Does it, you might remember. You might not. If you're not, can you guess? What was the most important spiritual practice, the most important spiritual practice to grow spiritually? Is it corporate prayer, Bible study, serving those in need, evangelism, fellowship? I mean, those are all really good things, but they're not it. They're not it. Can you guess what it was? Hands down, the highest impact personal spiritual practice was found to be reflection on Scripture. Reflection on Scripture. So that's what we're going to talk about the rest of the day. We have only one big idea for the whole rest of our time today. And we're going to kind of dig down deep, hopefully, into this. And by the end of our time, I hope that you would think about maybe engaging with this practice. So, so if we think about this, though, uh, the most influential spiritual practice for moving to each of the next growth stages is reflection on Scripture. Uh, I actually checked this out. I looked up the word reflection in a number of different Bible translations. And it's, it's really not in the Bible in any sense in regard to what it's talking about here, reflection or thinking about Scripture. There's some verses where it talks about reflection in a mirror, but that word's not in the Bible. And so I think one needs to ask a question, uh, what's going on here? Well, the Bible actually has a lot to say about this, but it uses different words. And one of the most common words the Bible uses to talk about reflection on Scripture is the word meditation. The word meditation. In Joshua 1.8, uh, it says this, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So let's unpack this a little bit. So this is from the Old Testament. Joshua's talking about the book of the law. Okay, so now I think we can expand that and say really it, we're, the principle here is all of scripture, not just the book of the law. He says, keep this always on your lips. What does that mean? Well, back when he wrote this, they didn't have cell phones. In fact, even written text was much less frequent. So I think he's talking about memorizing these words of the law and keeping them in your mind so that they're always on your lips. And he says, meditate on it day and night. We'll talk a lot about that in a minute here. But he makes some interesting comments after that. He says, so that as a result of the meditation, you can do everything written in the law and you will be prosperous and successful. So he's saying, if you do this, it's going to be a good thing for you. It's going to bode well, which is absolutely consistent with this idea of it being the most important spiritual practice. Now, many have negative ideas about meditation, right? So so if I were out in the hallway in the lobby with you and I asked you, I'm going to say a word, you tell me what what associations you have with that word. I said the word meditation. I think many of you might have mantras or chanting or emptying your mind, probably not positive things. But the biblical version is very different than that. The biblical version involves filling your mind with things, not emptying your mind. And again, we're going to talk more about that as we go through here. Another thought you might have about meditation, well, that's only for like really spiritual people. Like that's, I'm just, you know, I'm just a normal person. Like that's not for me. That's for like monks or like Joe Duke and the pastors at LifePoint Church are really spiritual people like Harry Perrine, right? So that's, that's not for me. And, and I would suggest that that is not true. It's not just for spiritual people. It's for all of us. It's for all of us. In fact, the Bible talks about meditation a lot, over and over and over again. We just read the Joshua 1.8 verse. Uh, it also says, The blessed man meditates day and night. I will meditate on your precepts, that's instructions. I will meditate on your statutes, that's your laws. Whatever is noble, right, pure, praiseworthy, 
Think about such things. Meditate on these things. Set your mind on things above. Think about these things. Over and over and over again, the Bible is suggesting that we be intentional, that we be intentional in what we think about. That we be intentional in what we think about. Now, honestly, I could just stop there. <laughs> because that's it. That's the whole premise. That's the whole idea that I want to communicate to you today. But I think we'd be, I'd be doing you a disservice if we did that because my sense is that there is a fundamental disconnect here. There's a fundamental disconnect. I mean, the Bible talks about this often. It encourages us, in fact, commands us to do it. The Reveal study found that meditation or reflection on Scripture was the most important thing you can do spiritually. Hopefully you'd be convinced. And yet, and yet, I feel, I think, I imagine you're probably not. Because most of us are probably resistant to do this, and I think probably few of us actually do it. So why is that? Why, why are we not doing the most important and most beneficial thing we can do? And I think the reason why is that we don't understand the why. Like, why does meditation work? How does that happen? Why is it a good thing? And then we also might not really understand what it means and how to do it. And so the rest of our time here, I have three thoughts, just three thoughts I'm going to share with you, and we'll go through the whys and the hows in regard to meditation. So it leads me to our first thought. Why is meditation so important? So I'm not sure I've worded these exactly, precisely how they should be, but these are my thoughts. Uh, and the thought is this, that the information that enters our minds can dramatically impact how we think and behave, and we can be absolutely, completely unaware of this. We can be completely unaware of this. For many of us, this seems obvious, uh, but I'm not sure we really understand how profoundly this is true or the depths to which it's true. So, so to illustrate that, uh, just a couple ideas I'll share with you here. So one is, in two weeks, many of us will watch Super Bowl 56. Super, we're not sure who's going to be in the Super Bowl yet, uh, but the Super Bowl will be held, uh, coincidentally, right here in the lobby of LifePoint Church. Maybe you saw the life-size goalpost out there this morning. Uh, so for those who are watching a video, there's a giant goalpost in the lobby now. Come and see it. Um, now, the, the Super Bowl will be held in SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California, home of the LA Rams and the Chargers. It will be televised nationally by NBC. And this is jaw-dropping. A 30-second commercial costs $6.5 million. $6.5 million. I don't know what your perspective is on money, but for me, that's like a lot, okay? <laughs> that's like three, maybe four times what many people, most people will earn in their entire lifetime for 30 seconds of time. So why? Why would anyone be so crazy to spend that much money on advertisements at the Super Bowl? Because really, a lot of us think, well, it's silly. They're just commercials. They don't impact me. They don't affect me. They don't have any say in what I do or what I buy. But men and women, it does matter. Advertising works. And the reason why companies are willing to pay so much money for Super Bowl commercials is because people will buy their products. And for them, it's a great investment because they'll earn much more money from the revenue of those purchases than they spend on Super Bowl. So you still might be a little skeptical here. Uh, to help convince you, I have this amazing study uh, that was published in the journal Neuron. And we're not going to go into a lot of depth here, but there's some really wonderful, amazing take-homes here. So it brings up this important question, how exactly does advertising work? How does it change the way I behave? And this fascinating study from a few years ago that addressed this age-old philosophical question, which do you prefer, Coke or Pepsi? Okay? So this is a really fantastic study. They took 67 volunteers and they put them in an MRI machine so they could visualize or image what parts of their brain were lighting up. And then they did a taste test. First, 
between Coke and Pepsi. First, they did a taste test that was blinded, so that the subjects had no idea which beverage they were drinking or consuming, and the majority had a preference, taste-wise, for Pepsi. Now, I'm not saying that's you, and I don't want to argue about Coke or Pepsi. I'm just telling you what's reported in the peer-reviewed literature, okay? So, now, the crazy, crazy part of this is they did it again. They did a taste test again, same two drinks, Coke and Pepsi, but this time, when the subjects drank the beverage, they drank the drink, they saw the logo. And do you know what happened? The majority switched their preference for Coke. Like, what? That is insane. That's crazy. So I think there's a couple really important takes home, take-homes here. Um, so two important messages. MRI brain scans during the taste tests show that Coke label created wild activity in the part of the brain associated with memories and self-image. And I'll note that that's a different part of the brain that's associated with taste and taste preference, memory and self-interest. While Pepsi, though tasting better to most, did little to these feel-good centers in the brain. Men and women, right there, it's proof. Advertising works. People's brains lit up when they saw the red and white Coke logo in places it shouldn't have lit up. It had nothing to do with drinking Coca-Cola. It had to do with memories and self-image. I think another really cool and interesting take-home comes from uh, neuroscientist Paul Wellen. He was interviewed uh, in U.S. News Report talking about this, this peer-reviewed uh, literature piece. He said, most of what we do every minute of every day is unconscious. We are conscious of only about 5% of our cognitive, of our brain activity. So most of our decisions, our actions, our emotions, our behavior depends on 95% of brain activity that goes beyond our conscious awareness. That is amazing, but it's true. And I can prove to you it's true. Have you ever had this experience? I have many times. So I have about a 35, 40 minute commute to UMBC and, and I've been doing it for 25 years. So it's happened many times where I will drive to school or home from school and I'm so deep in thought about something that I have absolutely no recollection of the entire 40 minute drive. Has that ever happened to you? You know what that means? It means you're driving while unconscious. <laughs> and I'm totally serious. Your brain is sharp and smart enough to handle complex decisions automatically. So it really matters what's in your brain because your automatic decisions depend on it. Thought number one, the information that enters our minds can dramatically impact how we think and behave. Your decision for preference for cola might be dependent on the advertising, not the taste. And we can be completely unaware of this. So it's not a surprise to God, right? He knows. And that's why, over and over again, we're instructed to be intentional about how we think. I love Colossians chapter 3. And I'm not going to do the whole chapter, but just the first two verses are so profound. Since then, Paul is talking to believers. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. He's talking to people who are believers in Jesus Christ. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Make a conscious decision what you will think about. Be intentional with what you will think about. Dallas Willard says this, nothing enters the mind, nothing, nothing enters the mind without having an effect for good or evil. It's one of the two. And men and women, I'm suggesting that we be proactive, that we make decisions on what we're going to put in our mind versus reactive. In other words, allowing someone else to put those thoughts in our minds. 
I love this idea. One of the few freedoms we have is to choose what we think about when nothing is demanding our attention. Right? We only have 5% of our cognitive activity that we're over control over. One of the few freedoms we have is to choose what we think about when nothing is demanding our attention. It matters what you allow into your mind because it impacts who you are and what you do. Okay, so hopefully I've convinced you that what goes in matters and you might not be aware of it. Thought number two uh, talks about how all this works. How does thinking impact me? And it takes us to this idea, thought number two, our ideas, and I have that capitalized because I'm going to I'll hone in on that in a second. Our ideas largely determine how we think and behave. Our ideas. Some authors have called these, not ideas, but mental maps. Uh, it's a little bit of an abstract idea, but they're general assumptions we have about reality. They're ways of thinking about things. Generally or often, they're abstract, and they're almost always products of our culture or shared socially with people in our society. So I'll give you a couple examples. So... If I ask you, what's your idea that comes to your mind when you think of a snowstorm? You think of, you know, one foot of snow and schools are canceled and the blizzard conditions. So I'm from near Buffalo, and when we have one foot of snow, we call it Wednesday. <laughs> uh, so a little, little, ser- a little more seriously, if I say the word freedom, if I say the word freedom, what comes into your mind? If we played word association, what would you think about? What would be the images and the words that come to your mind when you say freedom? Well, I would suggest that it's probably a shared thought for many people that live in the United States. It's not going to be identical, but it's a shared thought. But we lived in the former Soviet Union for over a year, my wife and I. And I'll tell you that what people think about freedom there is very different in Russia than what people think about here. And I don't, I've never been to Cuba or the People's Republic of China, but I imagine what they think about freedom there is also very different. Our ideas impact our behavior, but how does that work? So I think it's interesting to work through an example here. I think there's a progression. I think that our ideas form our beliefs. Our beliefs form our thoughts, and our thoughts are what lead to our behaviors or actions. So let's do this with a, with a, per, a particular idea. So the idea is safety. Safety or security. So I would suggest that the common cultural sense of safety is that the world is a dangerous place. The world is a dangerous place. And stemming from that idea would be beliefs that I need to protect myself and I need to protect my family and I do that at all costs. I need to exert energy to do that. And your thoughts, if you have the idea that the world is a dangerous place, might be thoughts of anxiety and fear and concern. And those might lead to behaviors that actually harm others because you're trying to protect yourself. You're trying to defend yourself and your family. So in contrast to the worldly idea of safety, let's think about the biblical or Christian idea of safety. And I would suggest to you that from the biblical perspective, the world is a completely safe place for me to be. The world's a completely safe place for me. You say, Mark, how can you say that? I mean, people are dying of COVID, and there's a problem with the economy, and we have relational issues. Well, I'm not, we don't have time to go into the depths here, but Romans chapter 8 is fantastic. Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We are on good grounds with our God. There's no condemnation. We are under grace. But it goes farther than that. In Romans 8, 28 through 31, 
says God causes all things to work together for good. God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. And you can say, wait, Mark, that doesn't make any sense. I know people that have gotten COVID and died. I understand. I understand. From the biblical perspective, the world is a completely safe place to be because there is no irredeemable harm that can befall us. Even if we die, we know our destination. We can be safe because we know our God and we know he protects us and he takes care of us. If that's the idea that's in your mind, if we go to beliefs, we probably believe that God can and will protect me, even if my circumstances aren't fun. He can and will protect me. And that would probably lead to thoughts of peace and joy and comfort. And if I have thoughts of peace and joy and comfort and belief that God can and will protect me, and think about actions, that actually frees me up to do crazy things, like to bless those who curse me, or to love, actually love, my enemies. That's the key. The key to doing the things that Jesus said to do is changing the ideas that we have in our minds. Okay, so someone who has godly ideas in their minds can have what almost seem like superpowers. What almost seemed like superpowers. Dawson Trotman was the founder of the Navigators, a Christian group with profound worldwide influence. And in 1956, he drowned while trying to save someone else. And I was actually talking to Joe about this, and he said, yeah, I actually talked to a woman that was in the boat where this happened. They had been water skiing all day. He was just physically exhausted. Uh, The boat was driving, and a, a girl who didn't know how to swim was thrown from the boat. He jumped in to save the girl, saved the girl, and died himself. Crazy story. Chuck Swindoll writes about the scene just after Dawson Trotman had drowned in his book called Starting Over. He says this, Eyewitnesses tell of the profound anxiety, the tears, the helpless disbelief in the faces of those who now looked across out over the deep blue water. Everyone's face except for one, Leela Trotman, Dawson's widow. As she suddenly walked upon the scene, a close friend shouted, Oh, Leela, he's gone. Dawson's gone. And to that she replied, in calm assurance, the words of Psalm 115. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. All of the anguish, the sudden loneliness that normally consumes and cripples those who survive did not invade that woman's heart. Instead, she leaned hard upon her sovereign Lord, who'd once again done what he pleased. Romans 8, 6 talks about this. It says, the mind governed by the flesh is death. If we adopt and embrace and include the ideas of the world, it leads to death. It leads to separation from God. It leads to negative thoughts and emotions and bad actions. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. When we replace the world's ideas with God's ideas, we have an opportunity to experience life and peace, almost to the point that it seems like we have superpowers. Now, I am not there. I am not at the place that Leela Trotman was when Dawson Trotman died. But men and women, I feel like I can see it on the horizon. I feel like I can see it on the horizon. And I want to go there. I want to be like that. Leela Trotman did not have superpowers. But you know what? God does. And when we replace the ideas that we have from the world with godly ideas, we adopt the ability 
to interact with God in a more profound way than maybe some of us have ever imagined. Thought number three. While difficult to do, our ideas can be changed through information and thinking. Our ideas are incredibly hard to change. It's because we're often unaware of them. We often have no idea. They're just things that play in the background. They're entrenched. Some authors have called it the grip of ideas. And you can't simply change them by intention or choice. You can't just will it to be so. I'm just going to change the ideas in my head. It doesn't, doesn't work. It's naive to think that it would. It requires something like a crisis or divine intervention. It takes something like a miracle for this to happen. But you know what? There are steps that we can take that will enable God to work in our life to change the ideas that we have. I like to think of it like a sailboat. I love the sailboat as a metaphor. You know, imagine a sailboat with many, many sails, and there's a crew. The crew of the sailboat is responsible for doing a lot of hard work. They need to set the sails. But if the wind don't blow, the sailboat's not going to go. I think this is just the same thing. The wind is God. We're responsible to enable, to set things up, to trim the sails, to catch the wind. And then it's God's responsibility to fill those sails with his wind to move us forward in relationship. It is possible to change our ideas. So how do you do it? I think that changing ideas involves a swamp. Replacing worldly ideas with godly ideas, it can't happen simply by making a decision or intentionality. We have to pull in the right ideas and they'll automatically push out the wrong ideas. Uh, it's a simple, almost trivial metaphor. When you walk into a dark room, you turn on the light and it pushes out the darkness. You don't have to ask where the darkness went. It's gone because you've replaced it. I think that's how it works. I think intentionality is involved. We have to fill our minds with correct information, and we have to think about it critically and thoughtfully. And that brings us full circle back to our big idea for today. The most influential spiritual practice for growing in Christ is reflection on Scripture. And I would suggest to you uh, that this requires two things, memorization and meditation. So memorization, what that does, it helps fill our minds with godly information. It fills our minds with godly information. So let me make a couple important points here. You don't memorize as a competitive thing. You don't memorize as a trophy. Memorization in itself does not make you more attractive or more favored with God in any way, shape, or form. Memorization is a tool that we use to help us think about things. You can certainly reflect on Scripture without memorizing it. But it's like, a, you know, in a video game, it's like a 10x, you know, upgrade, um, level up if you memorize because now you can reflect and think about things anytime. You don't have to be there sitting or looking at your phone or looking at a Bible. Meditation involves thinking deeply about Scripture, reflecting critically and thoughtfully about what the Scripture says and means. And it can involve imagination. Uh, so I think it was Rick Warren, perhaps, who said this. If you know how to worry then you know how to meditate. What is worry? Worry is taking a thought and rolling it over again, over and over in your mind, thinking about it from many circumstances. It's always a negative thought, right? Worry is always about negative thoughts. And it's rolling that negative thought over and over again in your mind all different times of day, at night. Sometimes you can't sleep because you're worrying so much. Meditation is the same thing. It's just taking, instead of a negative thought, it's a positive thought. It's a good thought. It's a godly thought. And rolling that over in your mind over and over again. So, so uh, let's 
talk a little bit about how this works. I, we don't have a lot of time. We could spend an hour or two on this if we wanted to. Uh, next slide for me. Um, but let's talk a little bit about how it works. This is the Lord's Prayer. And so for me, and everybody's different, okay? So I'm just sharing what I've done personally for the last, I don't know, 15 years, 10, 15 years or so. And it might look different for you, okay? But for me, thinking about things critically and thoughtfully. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Hmm, okay, so shepherd, I'm going to use my imagination. It's totally legal. You can use your imagination when you read scripture. God won't be mad. So I'm going to imagine a shepherd. And I'm imagine I'm a sheep. And what does a shepherd do? He takes care of the sheep. And I'm thinking sheep, wolves, wolves want to eat me. And the shepherd's going to protect me, right? I shall not want. I shall not want. So there's other translations that say I lack nothing. There's a book written about 23rd song called Life Without Lack. So I start thinking, I shall not want. What does that mean? Wow, what would it be like to live a life without want? Wow, I want a lot of things. What would it be like? How would my life be different if I didn't have wants? If I just lived? That would be amazing. How could that even be possible that I could live a life without want? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me inside quiet waters. Okay, well, so if you're a sheep, that makes sense, right? Because all I care about is grass and water, right? So that makes sense. Uh, he restores my soul. Wow, what a great verb. He restores my soul. Well, that means my soul was needed to be restored. Wow, what gets restored? Cars get restored. I'm thinking about those cool cars they park at Home Depot on Saturday, right? Those old cars, I've never been down there. Those restored cars. Okay, so I think you get the idea here. Meditation involves rolling a thought around in your mind over and over again, allowing God to move and eventually change the ideas that you have. Change the ideas that you have. So I want to finish today by giving you a challenge. Here's your challenge. Please, memorize and meditate on a passage of Scripture. This is your challenge. By next week, it's a homework assignment. I'm a professor, that's what I do. I give homework assignments. By next week, memorize and meditate on a passage of Scripture. And I know what you're saying now. You're saying what my students say. Oh, it's so hard. I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. I have so much in my life right now. I get it. Me too. Me too. But, crazy thought, you already have a five-verse passage memorized. Did you know that? Did you know that you already have, most of you, probably have a five-verse passage memorized? I'll start it out. You can probably finish it. Our Father... Art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So you know what I'm talking about. You have Matthew 6, 9 through 13 memorized already, right? So if you don't, you know, you want to kind of take the easy path, do that one, right? Or the Lord's Prayer, I'm sorry, or Psalm 23, I just showed you, that's only six verses. Or Romans 8, 1 through 8, I shared that a little earlier, that's only eight verses. Colossians 3, 1 through 17, that's 17 verses. It doesn't matter what you choose, and if you need suggestions, come and talk to Joe or me or any of the pastors here at LifePoint. We're happy to share some ideas with you. But pick up the challenge. So in summary, in summary as I close, we have information coming at us all the time. All the time. And we are often completely unaware at how that is affecting the way we think and how it's affecting what we do. So the Bible simply says, be intentional in what you think about. If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. So instead of worrying, meditate. You are setting the sails for God's wind to blow and to move you forward, and that is spiritual growth. The most important spiritual practice is reflection on Scripture, Medi memorization and meditation. Do it. 
Let me pray. Dear God, thanks for the opportunity to speak with our family this morning. Lord, thank you for the words that you share uh, in, the, in the Bible that explain and instruct us, that help us to understand what we need to do and how we need to do it. Lord, give us the want to. Give us the desire to want to grow and the want to when it comes to changing the ideas that are in our minds and help us learn how to do it. Be present with us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.